0: The reading of the scriptures from the prophet Isaiah, chapter 66 and verses 1 to 6. So let's hear the word of God in faith and in joy. Thus says the Lord, heaven is my throne and earth is my footstool. What is the house that you would build for me? And what is the place of my rest? All these things my hand has made. And so all these things came to be, declares the Lord. But this is the one to whom I will look, he who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. He who slaughters an ox is like one who kills a man. He who sacrifices a lamb like one who breaks a dog's neck. He who presents a grain offering like one who offers pig's blood. He who makes a memorial offering of frank Like one who blesses an idol. These have chosen their own ways and their soul delights in their abominations. I also will choose harsh treatment for them and bring their fears upon them because when I called, no one answered. When I spoke, they did not listen, but they did what was evil in my eyes and chose that in which I did not delight. Hear the word of the Lord. You who tremble at his word, your brothers who hate you and cast you out for my name's sake, have said, let the Lord be glorified, that we may see your joy, but it is they who shall be put to shame. The sound of an uproar from the city, a sound from the temple, the sound of the Lord rendering recompense to his enemies."
1: One of the greatest, uh, and perhaps in my own mind, the single greatest question of all time is who will be included in God's end-time temple? And really, more importantly, the corollary who will be excluded? Uh, Because the question is so manifestly great, breaks upon eternity and all of time. Uh, Who gets in and who does not get in? Uh, Really, that question begins uh, the last chapter of uh, the prophecy of Isaiah. Uh, It speaks to qualification in the kingdom as well as the more dreaded issue, disqualification. And so our prophet will tell us that in the end time uh, temple of the new creation, that God embraces the humble uh, in verses 1 and 2, and he will exclude the false who are marked for punishment in verses 3 to 6. And both again embrace uh, these words of who's included and who's excluded, qualified or disqualified. The reality of inclusion uh, is that the end time temple, as I suggested, embraces uh, the humble. Uh, the text I think is uh, an allusion uh, to the words of uh, Solomon in 1 Kings uh, chapter 8 and verse 21. Uh, because it speaks to the temple that God dwells in, and can we build Him uh, one that will uh, and can contain uh, His manifest glory and eternal dominion. And so Solomon says in 1 Kings chapter 8, and verse 27, But will God indeed dwell on the earth? Behold, heaven and the highest heaven cannot contain thee, how much less this house which I have built. Solomon has completed the temple, but he knows that God is much greater uh, than the temple he has just finished and all of its wealth and all of its magnificence. So his humility is pronounced. And of course, humility begins with who God is. I think if you understand who God is and His manifest glory, His dominion, His sovereignty, it can breed but nothing else, than a heart full of uh, humility. It's here that Isaiah embraces the universal transcendence of the divine government and total absolute supremacy because uh, Isaiah mentions the throne of God. uh, That his throne is heaven. And his throne governs the earth. Nothing happens apart from the pronouncements that come from the throne of God and the earth is his footstool, probably a reference to the tabernacle. It's a reference to the footstool of the feet of God, of the greatness, the grandeur, uh, magnificence of God, ruling from the throne of heaven, uh, touching the earth and the tabernacle. That there is no higher government or authority than him. It's true, of course, that God localized his presence in tabernacle and temple, but the new creation moves beyond this In universal presence and dominion, so that the glory of God will cover the earth as uh, the sea does in our creation. And fulfillment, of course, begins with the coming of Jesus and his death and resurrection. Uh, It is really, in my mind, the inauguration of the end time temple here proclaimed in Isaiah chapter 66 and verse 1. Uh, John, as you know, mentions this uh, second chapter of his gospel. Jesus says of his body, tear down this temple, referencing his physical body. And he says, in three days, I'll build it again, referencing what is resurrection? Reminder to us that all who believe in him, all who identify with the resurrection and the death of Jesus Christ are inaugurated as a part of his end-time temple. Uh, Mark chapter 14, in the first, pardon me, The 58th verse. Uh, We read uh, in the text a reminder of this very truth. We heard him say, again, they're trying to uh, convict the Lord of blasphemy. We heard him say that I will destroy this temple made with hands, and in three days I will build another made without hands. Again, another allusion to Isaiah chapter 66 from the standpoint that God does not need human workers to build his temple. In fact, the phrase made with hands is oftentimes included in contexts that reference idolatry. Uh, so the text is a reminder that God is opposed to the idolatrous. He's opposed, if you will, to anything that places uh, something ahead of him in terms of worship and service and glory and the magnitude of understanding who God is. This text, again, Isaiah chapter 66 and verse 1, is quoted by Stephen in his passionate defense before the Sanhedrin. Uh, Just to reiterate what Stephen says, Acts chapter 7, verse 48 and 49, However, the Most High does not dwell in houses made by human hands, as the prophet says. Heaven is my throne, Earth is the footstool of my feet. What kind of house will you build for me? Says the Lord. Or what place is there for my repose? But his response in verses 55 and verse 56 points in my mind to clear inauguration of the end time temple. But being full of the Holy Spirit, Stephen gazed intently into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, Behold, I see the heavens opened up and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. Uh, in of itself, this is an allusion to Isaiah chapter 64 in verse 1. Oh, that thou wouldst rend the heavens and come down, that the mountains might quake at thy presence. And so the heavens are opened, and Stephen sees the glory of God in Jesus Christ that in his death and resurrection, the end-time temple uh, has been stood up, and that end-time temple is advancing, gathering its adherents who are marked by humility. Uh, The book of Hebrews, of course, is in my own mind perhaps the clearest here. Uh, Hebrews chapter 9, verses 11 and 24. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things to come, He entered through the greater and more perfect tabernacle not made with hands. That is to say, not of this creation. That God makes His own temple to manifest His glorious presence. And then look at verse 24. For Christ did not enter a holy place made with hands, a mere copy of the true one, but into heaven itself, and now to appear in the presence of God for us. That God opening heaven for His people through Jesus Christ our Lord. It is something of the words of our Lord uh, to the Samaritan woman uh, when he says, neither in this mountain nor in Jerusalem. In other words, the temple of God will come down from heaven and cover the earth, uh, gathering uh, his people uh, that are humble, uh, reminding us that our hearts should be humble in light of what Jesus uh, did for us. uh, That though... Uh, clothed with the glory of heaven, uh, he left that abode, took upon himself human nature, and suffered and paid the penalty of wrath and hell uh, that we might gain through him eternal life. Uh, Not a product of any of our works or what we could do, what we could think, or who, who we could ever be, but rather totally secured for us by his finished work upon the cross. So that we could not build a temple to contain the majesty, the greatness of God. He does it himself. And that is the way in the end time kingdom. That God no longer manifests his presence in models or in prototypes for the end time temple through Jesus Christ has begun and his presence is now. But the greatest of questions is who's included? Who gets in? Who does he gather? And we begin that answer uh, in the answer of God, Isaiah chapter 66, uh, in the latter part of uh, the second verse. And as I've reminded you several times already, uh, it is is the humble. But to this one I will look, to him who is humble and contrite of spirit who trembles at my word that God embraces the humble. Uh, This word can also be translated poor or afflicted. Uh, Something of the theology is captured for us in Isaiah chapter 57, in the 15th verse. Isaiah chapter 57, verse 15. For thus says the Lord, the high and exalted one, who lives forever, whose name is holy, I dwell on a high and holy place, and also with the contrite and lowly of spirit, in order to revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the heart of the contrite. That God is defining his worshipers. That they come, of course, in external form, but they come with a heart that's been radically renewed in a humble and broken spirit. Uh, The word contrite, of course, uh, also speaks to this uh, very same reality. Uh, We know that Jesus says, Matthew chapter 5, verse 3, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Notice the present tense, is. The kingdom of heaven has invaded the earth and is gathering the humble, and the blessing of the Savior falls upon those who are poor in spirit, who recognize that they have absolutely nothing uh, with which to garner the blessings of God. They could not buy it. There is not a price that they could secure. There's nothing that they could do to earn it because it is so great in all of its majesty and the totality of its demands. It comes to those who recognize that in their spiritual lives and well-being that they're absolutely broke and bankrupt. And so they flee to the only one in the treasury of the merits of Jesus Christ, the God-man who came to claim them to redeem them, and to secure within them a humble and broken heart. The other divining phrase here that I think is uh, quite remarkable is to those who are qualified for the kingdom of God. Again, Isaiah chapter 66 in verse 2. And who trembles at my word. A broken heart and something of a heart that has a fear of God, not only in terms of his awe, and in reverence, but a fear of the word of God, fear of the majesty that God has proclaimed his will and his ways written for us in holy scripture, uh, that we tremble, that a mark, a distinguishing mark of true faith is an awe and reverence and fearfulness of who God is and what he has done in Jesus Christ. And again, there's a measure of fear here because we did not deserve it could never earn it. And that God sets the condition, and one of those is that we tremble at his word. Uh, there is uh, something of this in uh, the return, uh, partial return uh, of the children of Israel uh, coming out of Babylon, to come back to the land. Uh, Ezra chapter 9, verse 4. Then everyone who trembled at the word of God of Israel on account of the unfaithfulness of the exiles. They come back into the land, what do they do? They do what is natural to the human spirit. They begin to break the law of God, the commandments of God, the context of disobedience. Ezra embraces them and they tremble in fear because they knew what took them into captivity in Babylon, breaking the word of God. And so again, they are something of uh, the people of God that reference a fear, trembling at the word of God. Uh, Ezra chapter 10, the latter part of verse 3. And those who tremble at the commandment of our God, let it be done according to thy law. Again, they've been caught in disobedience, uh, but the word of God breaks upon them in terms of fear and trembling. That something of qualification in the life of the church is that of trembling at the word of God. Remember uh, uh, last summer going through some of the great cathedrals of uh, Europe. I was always somewhat saddened that uh, they were Roman Catholic, but uh, certainly southern Germany is dominated uh, by the Catholic church. And the cathedrals, as you might well imagine, are remarkably, in a physical sense, remarkably beautiful. I mean, there's gold everywhere. There's every type of ornament that you might imagine that would be in a Roman Catholic cathedral. And people, of course, would queue up to go in to see the physical beauty. But think about it. In terms of going to church, would we queue up in amazement to see a single, humble heart trembling at the Word of God? That's what should amaze us when we go to church. But not the gold and the silver and the precious stones and the vestments of, uh, uh, if you will, quote-unquote, the clergy, uh, the works of art that abound everywhere in those cathedrals. Would that we would go to church we would queue up to go to church to see a broken heart, trusting in Christ and Christ alone, and trembling at the word of the Lord because it is His word that He leaves to us for a record of the way of salvation and life everlasting. That the word speaks to sin and God's insurmountable gift of forgiveness. Had He not left that word, we would never have learned and we would never know, and we would perish in ignorance. The humility engages true worship, and all of the genuflecting at altars pales in irreverence at the absence of a heart that's broken and poor in spirit, trusting in Christ and Christ alone. Well, if the the end-time temple embraces the, the humble of heart, those that are poor in spirit and find their wealth in Jesus Christ, and the man or the woman or boy or girl that trembles at the very words of God found in Holy Scripture, it also excludes others. It disqualifies a great number of other uh, who profess to belong to the church and to Christ. Uh, Because beginning... In verses 3, the false professor is defined by four pairs of words that begin with an apparent positive and something's right and something that should be done and must be done, but then is negated. Let's look at the text. First part of verse 3, Isaiah chapter 66. But he who kills an ox is like one who slays a man. He who sacrifices a lamb is like the one who breaks a dog's neck. He who offers a grain offering is like one who offers swine's blood. He who burns incense is like the one who blesses an idol. Of course, there is nothing wrong in the first pair, if you will, of offering an ox or a lamb. But if it is merely perfunctory, then it's worthless. Even more so to God, it is appallingly offensive. Or if it engages pride in presumption, it's disqualified. There's something, of course, of this in uh, the rejection of Saul found in 1 Samuel uh, chapter 15. In verse 22, The context, again, is the rejection of Saul. Who was Saul? Well, he was at one point in time the king of Israel. But who else was he? Think about it. He was a member of the covenant community of Israel. By his visible presence, he belonged to physical Israel. And God rejects him. Now, that is a powerful statement because the rejection is eternal. So how is it that he belongs, but he's rejected? 1 Samuel chapter 15, verse 22. You have to read this and again remound, be reminded of how profound it is because of the eternal disqualification that embraces the king of Israel, the covenant people of God, in the king of Israel, Saul. Verse 22, and Samuel said, "'Has the Lord as much delight in burnt offering and sacrifices?' as in obeying the voice of the Lord. Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice, and to heed than the fat of rams. So the first reference, of course, in Isaiah chapter 66 is to a valid sacrifice. There's nothing at all wrong with killing an ox to be sacrificed for God. But Isaiah likens it to what? Murder. He moves from the positive to the negative. So that if you offer an ox with a corrupt heart, you're like a murderer. Next, the offering of a lamb to redeem a firstborn, entirely proper. It's part of the sacrificial language of the covenant people of God in the Old Testament, to offer a lamb. The firstborn belonged to God and had to be redeemed. It was redeemed by the offering of a lamb. In the case of a dog, if it was not redeemed, you broke its neck. Again, we have a proper sacrifice in a lamb, but absent humility, it is as one who refuses to redeem a firstborn. A grain offering is like an offering of pig's blood, a proper sacrifice entirely to be done in thanksgiving to God. But if it is absent the heart or the inner man or the inner woman, it's like desecrating the sanctuary with the blood of a pig, an unclean animal. It becomes a sacrifice of improper presumption And lastly, the burning of incense is likened to idolatry. The former acceptable, but when it engages pride, it is disqualified in the harsh terms of idolatry. Something of a reminder that the children of Israel, post-exilic, are gonna return to their old haunts in their own ways. They're gonna come with the entire cultus, the sacrificial language, the sacrificial duties, the bringing of the right sacrifices, but return in their hearts to become idol worshipers. Again, let's look at this in Isaiah chapter 29, the 13th verse. People returning to their own ways, even though their external form is entirely proper. Isaiah 29, verse 13. Then the Lord said, "...because His people draw near with their words," and honor me with their lip service, but they remove their hearts far from me, and their reverence for me consists of tradition learned by rote. It's a great application of this in so many American churches that are full of tradition in words that are simply mere rote repetition of that that tradition. Nothing wrong with liturgy, but if it's mere words, if it's mere repetition of rote sayings, it's totally excluded and rejected by God. Uh, It's found as well, same indictment, Hosea chapter 6 and verse 6, for I delight in loyalty rather than sacrifice, and in the knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. What really defines all of this is stated for us in the clarity of uh, the prophet uh, Isaiah. Uh, notice again uh, that they have, they have really chosen uh, their own way uh, with the parallel, Isaiah chapter 66 and verse 3, that their soul delights in abomination. Notice the phrase, Isaiah 66 and verse 3, and they have chosen their own Ways. This simple statement has profound application for our culture. We self define for so many people our own faith. We make Christianity a cafeteria. I'll pick and choose what I want and reject what I do not want. Making your own way, in the words of the prophet Isaiah, is likened to an idol cult because you are trusting and believing in yourself as co-equal with the divine word. And in our culture, it's my sad conviction that this is epidemic. We choose as if it is as good as God's way, and of course, it is not. God's way is contained for us in Holy Scripture. We are not given the choice. It is His to define, to qualify, and to disqualify and we elevate our word in prominence with his, and that, of course, is manifestly dangerous ground. It's also a powerful reminder that the heart is so essential because the means or the way to God and the end and the proper worship of the only true God are both consequential. The prophet is not rejecting sacrifice, bringing an ox or a lamb or burning incense. What he's rejecting is form absent the heart. Because both external form and the inner reality must be present. The other danger to this indictment is not really stated for us uh, by the prophet Isaiah, but let me turn it into an application. We are a very spiritual country. Spiritualism, I think, reigns supreme in our culture, but it rejects external form, and this is as wrong, as form absent humility. We have a way of saying that, well, I'm going to worship the one true God, but I'm not not engaging in external form. I don't want to go to church. I don't want to partake of the sacraments. Uh, If that's the way you want to do it, that's fine. I have my own way of worshiping God, and I'm a spiritual person. This text is condemning that as much as it is condemning external form absent the inner man. God wants both. You cannot vacate external form from the Christian faith. It is part of the faith ordained by the Lord Jesus Christ. Part of the faith is the external form of sacraments. You cannot partake of the Lord's table in the privacy of your own home. You cannot observe the sacrament of Christian baptism In the privacy of your own home, the form must be present, but it better not be absent the broken heart, trusting in the riches and the glory and the greatness of God our Savior in Jesus Christ. Both are necessary external form. Do not forsake the assembling of of yourselves together, as is the habit of some, the author of the book of Hebrews says. Go with form, but come with a broken, contrite heart, trembling at the word of God, that if you substitute anything with God or the proper way to him, you are likened to an idolater, which is emphatically excluded from the new creation. The other reality is the implied summons to purity uh, in worship. You don't get to make your own way. Come to God on your own terms. It is his or nothing. It's his and Everything. The irony is pronounced. You choose your own way. And so when you do that, what does God choose? You say to yourself, I have my own way to God. It's just as good as yours. God chooses your punishments. Verse 4. And his choice dominates. Isaiah 66 and verse 4. To all those who say, I choose my own way. It's as good as yours. What does God say? I will choose their punishments. I want to bring on them what they dread. Because I called and no one answered, I spoke, but they did not listen and they did evil in my sight and chose that in which I did not delight. Notice the indictments. I called. God calls in his word. There's no answer. I spoke. Uh, The written record for us of the voice of God is Holy Scripture. But they did not listen. They crowded out his word with everything else in the life of the church. They had no time for God's word. There's a sinister interplay here that the prophet causes us to reckon with. You trash the word, you trash God, and God will trash you. Worse, the fakers, verse 5, persecute the righteous who are broken of heart and who tremble at the word, verse 5. Uh, notice again, he picks up this, this phrase that he began with. Hear the word of the Lord, you who tremble at his word, your brothers who hate you, who exclude you for, not, for my name's sake. That part of a genuine Christianity is that we will be persecuted by the visible community. Uh, the righteous value the word of God they equate pronouncement with person. The fakers don't. They make their own way. That loyalty to God and his word comes with a price. Uh, the pretenders persecute the faithful. That just still not be the history of the church. But we must, we must remain true. Captured for us in our Lord Jesus Christ when the visible covenant community of God in the nation of Israel persecuted the Son of God as the very eternal word himself. And the throne of God answers. And what does the throne of God say? We begin with the throne of God. We end with the throne of God. Namely, the pretenders will be put to shame. Isaiah 66:6, 6, a voice of uproar from the city, a voice from the temple, the voice of the Lord who is rendering recompense to his enemies. Uh, The last verse tells us uh, how the pretenders will be put to shame. Notice, Notice the synonym to the word of God in the word voice. It's found three times in this text. The voice from the temple and from the Lord seals their permanent disqualification. And so the humble of heart, the person who is broken in spirit, the person who comes to Jesus Christ bankrupt in total need, in light of their abject poverty, of everything that he has and is. It's the Lord of glory. And they come because they tremble at the word of God. Uh, they value it uh, They come to acknowledge that it proclaims the way to salvation. They hear it, they take it to their heart, and they value it so much that they're willing to be persecuted because they want to be known as those who tremble at the voice of God captured for us in Holy Scripture. Think of it. Two great pronouncements. The prophet Isaiah is qualifying the people of God and disqualifying the visible people of God who know not a broken heart in light of their sin and the greatness of Jesus Christ and his sacrifice and who care little for the word of God. They come merely for external form with a vacant heart. And they know not God and the voice of God disqualifies them and excludes them. It's a reminder to us To come with both, external form, but the internal reality that God humbles us in light of who he is.